Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. Thanks for joining me again this week because I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be alive. I should be in a grave lying next to Kobe Bryant and John F. Kennedy Jr. because we all have something in common. Spatial disorientation. Hello. I'm talking about the term in relation with aviation. Now, as you know, I remind you often that I was a photojournalist. I would sit in the back of a helicopter and run a FLIR camera. This was from 1997 to 2007, both in Miami and New York. Here's a little sound of me live on MSNBC. Yes, a network with Chris Jansing flying over Little Havana and the house of Ilian Gonzalez's aunt Marcelesis right before Janet Reno ordered U.S. Marshals to enter the home and take the kid on Easter Sunday in 2000. We can see the protesters from the ground. Can you get a good shot from the air? You got it. We're looking now at the They're media. Yeah. Yeah, there's the two flags, the Cuban flag. And the American flag. That's about all the audio that is usable. The rest of it is garbled. They put up these barricades, as you can see here. The tents have arrived so that you're protected from our Florida sun. Lots of things have happened. They barricaded the street off entirely. I had to follow that kid around Miami for the entire time that he was here. You might remember he was the little Cuban boy that survived the crossing from Cuba over to Miami. His mother drowned. He floated up in an intertube on Thanksgiving Day and fishermen found him and he was surrounded by dolphins. He almost became like Jesus himself. And then they finally took him on Easter Sunday with, they were armed to the hilt, the marshals were. And there's that famous picture of him hiding in the closet and the marshal with his big gun. Well, anyway, I worked for Metro Networks, which provided a pool ship for all the television stations in Miami. When I first started working, I was in the helicopter and we only had NBC6 as an affiliate. So I was their traffic reporter. So they kind of ran the ship. But then I did a good job. So the other stations signed contracts to be part of the pool ship. And I ran the sole camera and reported for NBC6, but ran the camera for everybody. I remember everybody had a different style. So, you know, I'd be live with one station, WSVN Channel 7, which is the If It Bleeds, It Leads station. Channel 10, more conservative. And then NBC6, my out cue was from Sky 6. And then NBC6 had their own helicopter. When I wasn't flying, they would put it up, and it was also known as Sky 6. WTVJ, which the J stands for journalism, did not want to report anything about suicides because they didn't want copycats. So one day, some guy jumped off the Golden Glades Bridge. It's a flyover. There's like a bunch of flyovers. It's like a major nightmare intersection of a bunch of highways in Miami. And he jumped off the top bridge, the flyover, and landed in the middle of 95. Oh, no. There was another one that happened as well. A guy was in the middle of the Golden Glades, and he got out of his vehicle, his van, and when FHP stopped him, he went back to his car and he shot himself in the head and laid there dead on the road. That was the one. Anyway, NBC6 told me to shoot this and to not say what happened, just say that 95 is shut down. Don't say that there's some guy who shot himself in the head, blew his brains out, and is lying in the middle of the road. Well, then Channel 7 took my shot, and they're like, show it. And because I could only show the backup on 95 for NBC6 and I showed the van and the body covered with the yellow tarp. And I remember (laughs) 
Derek Hayward, he's like this British reporter for SVN, and he's like, what skeletons did this man have in his closet that would prompt him to blow his brains out on 95? So if you're watching SVN, you get the whole story. If you're watching Channel 6, you just find out that Northbound 95 is shut down. But that's the way it was. It was kind of confusing, but it was a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Now, as I said, NBC6 had their own Sky 6, and it was a brand new prototype Porsche of a helicopter made by McDonnell Douglas. It looked like a race car. It was really small, and it was really fast, and it had no tail rotor. That's what made it a prototype. Just two fins in the back, and it had six propeller blades, as I recall, and they would flex. I was in a long ranger, and I just wanted to explain... It had two propeller blades, four doors, and it had two sets of seats in the back. And I would sit behind the pilot who sits on the right side, kind of like how they drive in Britain. So I would run the camera behind the pilot and the FLIR camera was mounted at the front of the helicopter. So you kind of worked in tandem with the pilot in order to get the right shot. It was kind of like a choreographed dance. It was really kind of difficult, but I enjoyed it immensely because you're always the first one to get to a scene of something, like an accident or something. I remember getting on the scene of something on uh, Chrome Avenue when it was an accident, and I'm coming up, and everyone's taking me hot, 10, 7, 4, 6, and I'm like, I'm hot, and I'm saying, I'm arriving on the scene as we speak, so I don't know what we're going to see, and lo and behold, there's a body of a woman lying next to the road, and her head has come off. I'm like, oh boy, let me pull this out. Everybody wanted to be first, this just in, but it was really dangerous when they would take my shot hot as I was just arriving on scene. So I started out in a Jet Ranger when I flew in the WDP-TV Channel 5 helicopter. Jet Ranger has the two doors, so just one seat in the back and then the seats in the front, like a bench seat in the back. And then the Long Ranger has the two seats in the back. It's larger, has a larger fuselage and four doors. And then the McDonnell Douglas prototype, which I also flew in because I did some stories for NBC6. And the person running the camera in the back seat was Rob Pierce, whom I worked with at Channel 20 in Gainesville when I was a weekend anchor there at the ABC affiliate. So it's kind of incestuous, this journalism career. We all work together. So I knew Rob Pierce, a good friend of mine. He was my photographer several times. Then he got a job with NBC6. Very creative, very talented. So I'll tell you what happened to him in a moment, but I want to explain just a couple of things so that you understand the full impact of this podcast. There are lifetime parts on helicopters that you don't even have to, they, every so often they have to do a maintenance on a helicopter if it reaches a certain number of flight hours. And the tail fins on the back of the Long Ranger, they're, they're stabilizing fins that are near the tail rotor. Those are considered lifetime parts. And one time I'm flying with my pilot, Steve, when we're coming back to Pompano Air Park, which is where the Goodyear blimp is kept. And we're flying past this church. And then we go by the tower. And the guy in the tower says to my pilot, I can hear in my headphones, I can hear the pilot. I can hear the tower if I want to. I can hear the radio. I can hear television. I have all of these different sources that I can hear all at one time. I can multitask, so it was a great job for me. So the guy in the tower goes, you have something hanging off the back of your helicopter. And as we were pulling past the church, the whole helicopter, the tail end of it, went ass over backwards, and all the maps and pens and went flying, and we stabilized, and as we flew by the tower, the 
the the guy in the tower, the air traffic controller goes, you've got something hanging off your helicopter. So when we landed, my pilot, Steve, who had just quit smoking, lit a cigarette because one of the lifetime parts, the stabilizing fin on the back, had broken off and was dangling by the skin of the tail and was penduluming like three inches from the tail rotor. I mean, we should have been dead from that alone. I mean, we had so many things, near-death experiences that happened. One time we went into a low G. That's a maneuver when you go weightless and drop a few feet. Uh, We had the tail fin break off. We had a hydraulic failure going into executive airport where we had to have an emergency landing there. I told you about the time we had no oil and we flew into Homestead Air Force Base after I was over like a fatal accident about to go hot on NBC6 and my pilot's like, we have to land now. Like the oil gauge was pegging zero and we came smoking in <laughs> into Homestead Air Force Base surrounded by fire trucks and guys in silver suits and foam trucks and some guy with a TAM and an AK-47 and he's like, don't foam my helicopter. I was like, oh my God. Then we were flying over the Palmetto Expressway one day. We're about 800 feet over the Palmetto and a kite wrapped around our propeller, our main propeller. And we landed there at Opelika Airport. That's where all the stars usually land, like uh, Whitney Houston would come through there. Anyway, he had to cut that. It was like a 400-pound monofilament line that wrapped around our (laughs) our freaking prop. Uh, Then also we had uh, storms. We'd fly around thunderstorms. We would fly through hurricanes. I would help with evacuation effort. If the winds were up over 40 miles per hour, then we'd have to land. But up until then, I could help with evacuations from the air because I did traffic as well. But when you fly by these thunderstorms, there was a lot of them that would include a water spout. We flew really close to a water spout one time. It was really cool. It's kind of tranquil, actually, except for the tornadic water spout. And then so we'd fly by uh, lightning storms and huge, big thunder clouds, and my fillings would get hot in my head. When- lightning would strike near the helicopter. I'm just kidding. Um, and then one time we landed at Burton Jack's restaurant. Yeah, Burt Reynolds, a restaurant there down in Miami. It was on an island and it had a helipad and we landed there for dinner. It was like we were some superstars, Donna Davis and I. Donna Davis flew with me in the back seat. She was on the radio. She was my best friend. She's this beautiful blonde. And she was the calm, cool, and collected adult in the family. Because <laughs> I was like the adventurous one. Um, and... I remember we would fly over Hallover Beach, which is the naked beach, nude beach. And I had a two-time extend on my camera lens that I could extend and really look. So we'd fly low, like 300 feet, so that none of the other stations could get the microwave signal (laughs) and see what we were shooting. But I would need that two-time extend lens because it seems like most of the people who go to a nude beach should not be showing their body on a nude beach. Not much to see there. And I mean that literally. And then I covered a couple of chopper crashes in New York. They'd land in the Hudson River. Uh, In fact, Channel 7 covered Channel 4 crashing into the river one time. They actually had video of it crashing. I mean, helicopters have like 30,000 parts. They're not meant to fly. The pilot sits, as I said, in the front right seat. He holds onto this stick between his legs called a cyclic. And that's how he steers the thing. I mean, it's just unnatural. 
I think that Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci, kind of drew up the first helicopter. And yeah, I think it was around the 1500s, like 420 years before the helicopter was built. Leonardo Da Vinci sketched out what he called the aerial screw. This aerial screw was a man-powered helicopter that required four men to spin cranks fast enough to generate enough lift to get off the ground. It's still the same thing today. It really isn't meant to fly. And case in point, Kobe Bryant. We remember that he died in a helicopter crash in January of 2020. And here he is in an interview with Alex Rodriguez as to why he chose to fly in a helicopter in order to get to work. Tell us a little bit about your routine. You're in Newport Beach and you, you, you take a helicopter. Walk us through it and why and how that started. A lot of people don't know that story. Yeah, so the, um, I always get to practice really early. My routine is always the same. You know, I, I'd wake up four in the morning mm. and I lift weights you know, really early, five in the morning. Mm. Get home at about 6.30 in time to wake up the kids for school. And then I take the kids to school every morning. That's what I do. I take them to school. And then after I take them to school, I go to practice. I drive to practice. And this is when, before people started really moving down south. So mm-hmm. I can get down to LA in 30, 40 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So I practice. I'd stay late after practice, get my shots up, treatment up, drive back. And I can get back in time to pick the kids up from school, mm-hmm. you know, after school activities, all that fun stuff, even on weekends. But then traffic started getting really, really bad. Right. And I was sitting in traffic and I wound up missing like a school play because mm-hmm. I was sitting in traffic and this, this thing just kept mounting. And I had to figure out a way where I could still train and focus on the craft, but still not compromise family time. Mm. And so that's when I looked into helicopters and be able to get down and back in 15 minutes. And, mm. and that's when it started. Waits early in the morning, kids to school, fly down, practice like crazy, do my extra work, media, everything I needed to do fly back, get back in carpool line, pick the kids up. And my wife was like, listen, I can pick them up. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I want to do that because mm-hmm. like, you know, you have road trips and times where you're not, you don't see your right. kids, man, right. you know? So like every chance I get to see them and spend time with them, even if it's 20 minutes in a car, like I want that. Well. I got a bad feeling about this. That's the black mamba. And he really cherished his time with his kids on Sunday, January 26, 2020, he was flying in a Sikorsky S-76B helicopter. And he was with his daughter. And there were nine people on board. And they were actually going to a basketball tournament. And they were flying over Calabasas, California. And there was fog in the area. There was poor visibility. It was about 30 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles, and they were en route from John Wayne Airport to Carmelo Airport. And as I said, nine people on board, including Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, a baseball coach, Jim Ottobelli, five other passengers, and the pilot. Now, everybody on board was aware that there was poor visibility, and this pilot chose to fly into it. Now, investigative updates published by the National Transportation Safety Board during the accident state that the helicopter was not fitted with a flight data recorder. Okay. Usually helicopters aren't. Airplanes, yes. Helicopters, no. Or a voice recorder. Nor was it required to be. Toxicology testing performed by the laboratory at FAA Forensic Science on specimens from the pilot revealed there was no alcohol in his liver in his muscles, and drugs were not detected in his body. 
There was no evidence of any kind of uncontained or catastrophic internal failure to the engines. But we do know that there was fog in the area. So what caused this helicopter to crash? Well, the cause of this helicopter crash that killed the NBA star Kobe Bryant is yet to be determined, but newly released information shows the pilot appears to have been spatially disoriented by the weather conditions, even telling air traffic control he was climbing in altitude when he was actually descending. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, I know all about that. And something happens when a pilot of a helicopter especially gets into fog and It's called intermittent meteorological condition. You get spatially disoriented. You don't know up from down. And the same thing happened to John F. Kennedy Jr. On the evening of July 16th, 1999, JFK Jr., of course, the son of John F. Kennedy, died when his aircraft that he was flying crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off of Martha's Vineyard. His wife, Carolyn Bissett, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, were also on board and died. Here's Tom Brokaw with the awful news. It has now been confirmed that all three bodies, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren, have been found on the ocean floor off Martha's Vineyard. So, on the afternoon of July 21st, divers recovered the bodies of JFK Jr. and the Bissett sisters. Divers found the Bissett sisters near the fuselage, while Kennedy himself was still strapped in his seat. Coast Guard Admiral said that all three bodies were near and under the fuselage still strapped in. The bodies were taken to the county medical examiner's office by a motorcade. Autopsies on the evening of July 21st performed by the county medical examiner's office found that all three died upon impact. After the autopsies were completed, the three bodies were taken from Hyannis to Duxbury, Massachusetts, where they were cremated in the Mayflower Cemetery crematorium. I mean, it's just a damn shame because they were such a beautiful couple. Uh, They had just gotten married and they're heading over to Martha's Vineyard for a wedding and they were running late. JFK Jr. was supposed to take off earlier before it got dark because he had just bought this new plane. And there was question as to how many hours of flight he had actually had in this new plane if he really knew what he was doing in it. I mean, I met JFK Jr. I was dancing at Lulu's on Palm Beach. It was like this cocktail lounge dance club and I looked next to me and there he was on the dance floor busting a move he was wearing all white white pants white shirt open at the neck oh hairy chest and a long chain that was connected to his belt that hung down and apparently connected to his wallet that was in his pocket because apparently I found out later he was forgetful and he would lose his wallet a lot so he chained it to himself So the single-engine Piper Saratoga that JFK Jr. had just purchased departed from New Jersey's Essex County Airport, and its intended route was along the coastline of Connecticut and across Rhode Island Sound to Martha's Vineyard Airport. And JFK Jr. was seen boarding the plane that Friday night with crutches. And there was a question, was he fit to fly? Could he control the rudder with his feet and steer the plane because he had a broken ankle? Yeah, I'm in a cast. I broke my ankle. It's the first weekend of the summer, and I'm laid up for a couple weeks. So in addition to his foot problem, his ankle problem, there was an automatic system that misgaged the weather and said that there was nine miles visibility. So JFK had bad information about the weather. The weather forecast was plain wrong. It was nighttime. It was hazy. He couldn't see the horizon. He didn't know up from down, and he 
flew right into the ocean with his wife sitting in the back seat with her sister. How horrible. So the official investigation by the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, concluded that Kennedy fell victim to spatial disorientation while he was descending over the water at night and consequently lost control of the plane. Now, he did not hold an instrument rating, and therefore he was only certified to fly under visual flight rules. I just want to explain that there's VFR and IFR. So instrument rating would be IFR and visual flight rules is VFR and it takes about 30 to 40 seconds to assimilate between the two as long as you have the instrumentation in the cockpit. My helicopter never had IFR. It just said VFR meant the pilot could only use his own eyeballs to see what was going on. So in these types of accidents where there's spatial disorientation or intermediate meteorological conditions, 95% of them end in death. I just want to put it out there and JFK is one of them. And the pilot of the Kobe Bryant helicopter was another. So at the time of the crash, the weather and light conditions were such that all basic landmarks were obscured. That means he couldn't see the horizon and he had no way of knowing if he was going up or down. It ended up being down. Now, some aviation accidents are just pilot plain and simple. I mean, if you ever heard the words, watch this come out of a pilot's mouth, you know you're doomed. So let me lay some groundwork that will help you understand the Kobe and JFK crashes as well as what I experienced in the Metro helicopter, also known as Sky 6. So IFR stands for Instrument Flight Rules. It's a set of rules that govern aircraft that fly in intermittent meteorological conditions. In general terms, instrument flying means flying in the clouds. Now, VFR stands for visual flight rules, and the term refers to a set of rules created by the FAA for flight in VMC, or visual meteorological conditions. These are terms that even pilots sometimes use incorrectly. To avoid confusion, it's best to learn the correct terminology from the start. When referring to VFR or VMC, VFR is the type of flight operation or type of flight plan flown by the pilot, and VMC refers to the type of weather conditions. So IMC instrument meteorological conditions is an aviation flight category that describes weather conditions that require pilots to fly primarily by reference to instruments and therefore under instrument flight rules, IFR, rather than by outside visual references under visual flight rules, VFR. So typically this means flying in cloudy or bad weather. Now, pilots sometimes train to fly in these conditions with the aid of products such as foggles, specialized glasses that restrict outside vision, forcing the student to rely on instrument indications only. So with good visibility, which JFK Jr. did not have and the pilot of the Kobe Bryant helicopter did not have, pilots can determine the aircraft attitude by utilizing visual cues from outside the ship, most significantly the horizon. Now, without such external visual cues, pilots must use an internal source of the attitude information. And that's usually provided by a gyroscopically driven instrument, such as an attitude indicator, artificial horizon, or a glass of water. The availability of a good horizon cue is controlled by meteorological visibility. So if you're flying at night, flying in a haze, flying in a fog, you are screwed if you don't have instrumentation on your aircraft that helps you switch from VFR to IFR. Now, before I get into what happened to me when I was flying in Sky 6, I want to begin with what happened to 
Sky 6, the WTVJ prototype helicopter on March 3rd, 2000 in Miami, when Rob Pierce, my friend, was in the back seat and his pilot, Ruben Rivero, was flying back from a scene where I believe it was a bus was hit by a train. It was midday. So I would fly in the morning and at night when there was traffic. And then Sky 6, the prototype with Rob Pierce and Ruben Rivero would fly midday while I was on the ground. So they went up for this breaking news in midday where a train hit a school bus, along with all the other helicopters from all the other stations. There was another helicopter, a Robinson R-44. It's a three-seat helicopter that spotted the Channel 6 helicopter with Rivero and Pierce on board. Now, all the stations were there covering this accident with the train and the bus, and When you're in the helicopter and you're covering news, you're able to speak to the station through a two-way radio. So you're in constant contact with the station. So they had, I think they went hot for the noon show with that. And they were on their way back when this person in the R-44 helicopter saw the Sky 6 helicopter. And this is what he witnessed. He said he saw two helicopters dodging and weaving within feet of each other. He said, I'd never seen anything like it. They looked like kids playing tricks on one another and getting in each other's way. It was like watching a Blue Angel stunt, planes doing stunts for an audience. And just before the accident, one of the pilots told the other, quote unquote, watch this. You never want to hear that coming out of a pilot's mouth. When you hear, watch this, coming from a helicopter pilot, it is not a good thing. Hey, what happened? And in the final NTSB report, Rivero then put Sky 6 in such a deep and sudden climb that the helicopter's blades bent and hit the tail, severing it. And without the tail, the helicopter went into an uncontrollable spin. Plunging into a cul-de-sac in southwest Miami-Dade, bursting into flames, killing Rob Pierce and Ruben the Cuban, which was his nickname, barely missing homes there. In fact, the severed tail ended up falling in the backyard of a home near the pool. Now, the five-member NTSB board concluded that the probable cause of the accident was the pilot's ostentatious play and in-flight decisions. He was horsing around, horseplay. Only days before the crash... 34-year-old Rob Pierce had told friends he was uncomfortable flying with Ruben the Cuban, is what we called him, Ruben Rivero, who was 42 because of Rivero's stunts, according to the NTSB report. Pierce told a colleague at the news station he was concerned about flying with Rivero because he was an aggressive pilot. We used to call him cowboys. And I had a pilot. His name was D. Loban. He was from England, and he was a gypsy. He had a, a dagger tattooed on his forearm. And guess who his best friend was? Ruben Rivero. Yes. Now, D., when Donna and I were in the Long Ranger, the other Sky Six, he would do the same maneuver. He'd go, let's get the cobwebs out, shall we? And he'd fly straight up and do this hairpin turn. But we only had two blades, so it wouldn't cut off the tail. And I loved it because I was an adventurer. But Donna, the adult in the group, she was less adventurous. She would tell Dee, I don't want to do that anymore. She was just like Rob. She thought that he was too aggressive. Now, when the Sky 6 helicopter went down, Channel 7 went back and shot it burning in the cul-de-sac while the news desk at Channel 6 was trying to raise Rob Pierce on the two-way radio. Sky 6, come in. Sky 6, come in. Where are you? Rob, where are you? And he wasn't answering. So they are figuring out that this flaming pile in the middle of this cul-de-sac is actually their helicopter. And no one was reporting that it was Rob Pierce who died in the crash because they had to notify his next of kin. 
So my boss says, when the afternoon came around, it was time for me to fly. Do you want to fly? I'm like, yes, I need to go up. I need to let people know it wasn't me that died in Sky 6. It was the other Sky 6. It was a crazy day. Even my mom didn't know until she turned on the news and saw I was okay. Now, Channel 6 issued a statement saying that the two men were sorely missed at the station and that the NTSB report speaks for itself, obviously just a travesty. Now, Ruben Rivero's autopsy report revealed traces of a byproduct of cocaine, which meant that he could have ingested the drug a half hour to five days before he died. And there's a truism in the pilot circle. When a pilot says, watch this, you need to watch out. So my pilot, D. Loban, who, as I said, was from London. Anyway, some question that he might have fudged his flight hour experience. And he loved a hot dog, just like Ruben the Cuban. And he was best friends with Ruben. And there were a couple problems with D. One time he did what's called a low G and we went weightless. There were, you know, just incidents that we were just hovering over 95 and all of a sudden we were like falling. But one day in the winter, here in South Florida, there when you're in the winter, there's like thermal variation. So there can be warm air at the ground and then cooler air up in the sky. And we would fly like 500, 800 feet over the ground. And there was this cloud bank. In effect, it was fog that was hovering about 300 to 500 feet off the ground. And as I have stated, helicopters cannot fly in fog. Now you could fly during hurricanes, as I said, up to winds of 40 miles an hour. And when there's lightning, you know, you just stay clear of it. But we flew at that height, sometimes 800 feet. So we stayed south of Sunrise Boulevard, south of Fort Lauderdale all morning to avoid that cloud bank. Now, we could fly over the cloud bank, and you couldn't get a shot through the clouds to see the streets below, but you couldn't fly through the clouds themselves. You could fly above it. By the way, I used to have to find streets in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey when I worked in New York just simply by using a laptop in the back seat and using the camera and just looking around, trying to figure out where everything was. Now the camera populates the street names. So the viewer at home knows exactly what you're looking at and the guy in the back running the camera knows exactly what they're looking at. I wish I had had that. But anyway, at the end of the morning, we flew north and out over the Atlantic Ocean and Dee was inspecting the cloud bank and... He said, oh, I found a hole. And later after I researched this whole thing, this is called a sucker hole. And my pilot had get their itis. I suppose John F. Kennedy Jr. also had get their itis. He wanted to get to Martha's Vineyard for the wedding. And he was it was late at night. And against your better judgment, you do these things. So Dee says, let's pop down there and see if we can make the airport. I can see the corner of the airstrip through the hole from here. You could see it. So we're like, okay, because we wanted to get home too. I wanted my nap. And by happenstance, my ex-husband, Sean, was driving with my daughter, I guess on 595 at the time, and looked up at the sky and literally said, gee, I hope your mom isn't flying in that. It looks ominous, the cloud bank. So here's what happened next to the best of my memory. And this would have been... Somewhere around 1999 or 2000. So we popped down in the hole and we're flying about 100 feet off the Intracoastal Waterway. If you're not familiar with South Florida, the Intracoastal is a waterway that runs parallel to the ocean. And then there's a strip of land in between the ocean and the Intracoastal. And we started flying up northbound on the Intracoastal at 100 feet. And that's illegal, first of all. You have to be at least 500 feet if you're a helicopter. 
And as we're heading north, we're like flying between, there's a Houston's restaurant. We flew past that. We were just over the Atlantic Boulevard Bridge because there's bridges that go over the Intracoastal Waterway. And I can see people on docks down below. I mean, I can, we're almost like just 100 feet over the water. And we're between condominiums. And we get uh, probably about within a quarter mile of the airport. And D goes, we have to turn around. So he turns the ship around. And at that moment, the cloud bank engulfed the helicopter. It was all white. Everything went white. You couldn't see anything. And D started screaming out. Aah! And he was like yanking at the cyclic. And the ship went weightless. The pens went flying, just like it did when the tail thing broke off. And the maps went flying. And Don and I started we grabbed each other and started holding on and we were like, oh my God, it was so fast and it was so scary. We didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, apparently D was able to see land through the bubble, the clear bubble beneath his feet. And he pulled the chopper out 15 feet above the beach between two condominiums and started heading south along the beach. We didn't say a word. We land at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. And I get out and I go, D, oh my God, thank you for saving our lives. And he goes, no care in your lives, we're never in danger. I was like, don't almost kill me and then tell me I was never in any danger. So I stomped off toward the terminal and there was the FAA office. So I went in there, told them exactly what happened and they said, show us. And they sat me down at this wooden cyclic and put a blindfold on me. And then they asked me to figure out up from down. It was impossible. And so both Donna and I, that very moment, we filled out paperwork as to what happened. And what we wrote down was almost identical. So... (laughs) My boss was like, you don't want to ruin this guy's career. I'm like, ruin his career. He almost killed us. So we had a meeting at three o'clock that afternoon about what happened back at Metro. But before that, I went down to the docks and I found a man who saw the helicopter and got his business card. And he said, yeah, I saw you flying up there. You're about 100 feet and you went into that cloud. And I'm like, okay, thank you. So I get to the meeting with D and the owner of the helicopter company and my boss. And they're like, well, you two girls in the back seat experienced vertigo. You had vertigo. Yeah, the blonde and the brunette in the back had vertigo. I'm like, right. Well, I had researched because there were computers back then. And I learned all about intermittent meteorological conditions and that the pilot experiences vertigo and that 95% of the time it ends in death. So there, we wanted a new pilot. And I said, if you don't believe me, I threw down the business card of the guy I met on the docks who witnessed the whole thing. I said, call him up, he'll tell you. I mean, if D had just said, yeah, man, I'm so sorry, I almost bit it there, I probably would have just hugged him and thanked him. And then it was several years later, the FAA finally yanked his license for a little while after they investigated the whole thing. But in the interim, I'm watching TV and I'm watching, I think it was Entertainment Tonight or Access Hollywood. And they were talking about a plane crash at Aspen Airport. Aspen Airport is rated the most dangerous airport in the United States. And in order to land in snowy Aspen, pilots must be specially certified to do so. Uh, It's likely because of the fact that the airport is wedged between two mountains, requires a swift descent at a high altitude. And so they 
are talking about this crash at Aspen and they go to their expert pilot, D. Loban, to describe why it's so difficult to take off and land from Aspen Airport. I'm like, oh my God. They found D. Loban out of all the pilots in the world to be their expert pilot. I just found him actually on LinkedIn today in 2020 and he's a corporate pilot back in Nottingham, United Kingdom. So he's across the pond, probably flying the queen around. Did you know that the queen used to drive around in a Mini Cooper wearing a hat and sunglasses so she could spy on the peasants of London and see how they were doing, how they were living the low life? Anywho, just to kind of wrap this whole thing up, you know, no hard feelings against D, even though it sounds like I do, but when you almost die and you realize it and you live you have a whole new lease on life. And Kobe Bryant and his daughter sitting in the back of that helicopter did not understand what could happen if that helicopter flew into the fog. I didn't understand what could happen if we got into the fog. JFK obviously didn't understand what could happen if he flew into the haze. When less than 5% of those people who actually get into that situation make it, you realize that you have a guardian angel and someone is definitely watching over you. So, you know, Carolyn and her sister, Lauren, had no idea what was going on. Maybe if they did, maybe if they had the information that I have now, they would have said, John, we can't fly in these conditions. But remember, he had an inaccurate weather report. You don't know until you get up there and it happens so fast. So just as I suspected, the National Transportation Safety Board this week just came out with its findings on the Kobe Bryant crash and says the pilot suffered spatial disorientation, and that's the cause of the chopper crash that killed the L.A. Laker along with his daughter and seven other people. Now, the NTSB chairman says that the pilot flew the helicopter through the clouds in an apparent violation of federal standards and of his training. It really paints a fairly vivid picture of a helicopter that encountered poor visibility and began to turn around and then crashed into the hills. But the pilot may have been pressured by Kobe Bryant himself to keep flying. It's called get their itis. Pilot always flew this particular client, and uh, we we do feel that it was reasonable to draw the conclusion that there was self-induced pressure. That's the NTSB chairman, Robert Sumwalt, and he says that they simply should have stopped the flight when it became difficult. The pilot can believe that the aircraft is straight and level when it is not. Because even though the pilot may have been pressured by a high-profile celebrity passenger, it was up to the pilot to determine that it was too dangerous to fly. This tragic crash could have been prevented. There were opportunities along the way to have reversed the course and prevented this crash by simply landing. So the NTSB found that the deadly crash was totally avoidable, just like my near-death chopper experience. Our entire purpose for this investigation is to learn from this event so that we can keep others from going through what you have gone through. And believe me, having had personal experience with a pilot who was suffering from spatial disorientation, it is very scary. I was just very lucky that my pilot was able to stabilize the ship, fly between two condominiums, and pull up safely 15 feet over the beach. Well, I'm just happy to be alive and that the good Lord spared my life so I could share it with you.
That wraps up Full Rigor for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe and check me out on Instagram, Full Rigor Podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening. As an Alliant Energy representative, I really enjoy helping businesses save. Today, I visited a business that asked for a free energy audit. After walking through their facility, I let the customers know how much money and energy they could be saving. Plus, I gave them an action plan detailing how to improve their energy efficiency. I showed them how they could save even more with rebates from Alliant Energy on equipment upgrades. If you are interested in saving energy and money, schedule a free energy audit at AlliantEnergy.com slash energy audit. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.